Bibles and turn with me to the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning verse 30. We are coming quickly to the close of this 11th chapter, this chapter on faith, this chapter that shows us how faith has been a reality, not just in New Covenant believers, but also in Old Covenant believers, that it was not by their works, but it was by their faith that they were made right with God and they were delivered. I, I, I go back again to chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, where the writer there gives us his definition, his understanding of faith. He said, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. Of course, then he goes on to write about not only men, but also women in this passage. And so that's a generic understanding that it's through faith, by faith, in faith, that all of us are approved by God. It's not by our works, not by our actions, although actions will flow forth out of faith, but it's by our faith in Him and our trust in Him that really sets us right with God. As we come to verse 30, we find that there's sort of a, a gap here from 29 to 30. In, in, in verse 39, he's, he's closing out with uh, Moses and he talks about how they went through the Red Sea by faith. It was by faith they went through that sea. And then in verse 30, he starts with them present in the promised land. Thus my title today, Faith in the Promised Land. Now, as I looked at that this morning, I didn't think about this and I put it down. It's not faith in the promised land. It's faith in the promised land. You understand the difference in inflection? They're, they're not trusting the promised land. They're trusting God while in the promised land. So there's that, that gap there. He mentions nothing about the wilderness wanderings. Now, we could all speculate on why that may be. It may be that he, he looked at the wilderness wanderings, and while they, they still had faith in God in that and they trusted him, there was also a lot of complaining going on in the wilderness. There was a lot of fussing about not having uh, garlic and leeks and all those great things that they said they missed and not having meat to eat. All they had was this manna. And while the manna was a provision of God in an unbelievable way, they got kind of tired of it after a while. And, and God listened to their grumbling, listening to their bickering. And so finally said, okay, you want meat, you'll have meat. And he sent quails in great abundance to where the scripture says they had quails coming out their nostrils because of that. I mean, there was, there was, it's quite a, a vivid imagery and almost a humorous imagery uh, the, the way he describes that. But the truth is, while all this is going on, they're wandering, they're, they're disbelieving, they're believing, they're disbelieving, they're believing. There's a trust by the leadership and a, a weak faith at best by those who are following. So the writer of Hebrews just says, let's just not even look at the wilderness wanderings. Let's think about what takes place now after you've seen all of these great people of faith, Abel, trusting him in, 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 in worship, Enoch trusting, Noah trusting, Abraham trusting, uh, and uh, Moses trusting, and, and all these as they move toward the promised land. Let's just move past the wilderness wanderings. That was kind of a disaster in some ways. And let's look at what takes place when they get into the promised land. Moses has died. And, and now Joshua is leading them as they move forward to inhabit and possess the promises that were made. Now, you know that first generation didn't get to experience it because of their lack of faith. 
And God let them wander around until all of that first generation, that older generation, had died off. And then, and even Moses didn't get to go in. But finally, Joshua led them uh, into, the, into the promised land, into Canaan. And the first city they come to is that city of Jericho. Listen to what the writer says here. Verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more felt shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak, not that one, Samson, uh, Jephthah, uh, of David and Samuel, and the prophets. Now, now the, the basic thing he's saying here is, you know, there, there's so many to talk about, I, I can't go into it because time fails me. We talked about how early on in this book that it possibly was a sermon that was being preached. Uh, to a group of people, and it was written down and, and recorded for us, but it was written sort of in sermonic form. And, and this makes me believe that that's probably true because pastors and preachers are always good at, at coming to some point in their sermon of saying something like, well, there's a lot more I could say about that, but I don't have time. I've got to move on. Typically, we say that when we really don't have anything else to say, but it sounds better to say, we've got a lot more we can say, but we'll just move on, you know. And so this kind of gives me credence here. It gives us credence that it might have been a sermon that he was preaching. But he, he, he focuses in on, on three different areas, I think. And I think the purpose of this latter part of the book that we'll look at today and look at in, in a couple of weeks is, is to understand that, that faith is, is varied. That all faith does not look exactly alike. That, that faith man, manifests itself in different circumstances and in different ways, but yet it's always faith in one object. It's not faith in the promised land. It's not faith in the leader. It's not faith in a strategy. It's not faith in a program. It's not faith in, in how we can do things ourselves. It's always faith in a proper object, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in God and God alone. In each of these situations, they face difficulty in various ways, but they always trusted God, and God always saw them through it. The first thing he has here is Jericho. He talks about the walls of Jericho. Brother Todd read that text uh, out of the, the Old Testament, out of Joshua, uh, reflecting what he's talking about here. It was kind of a strange strategy, if you look at it, humanly speaking. I mean, they come to the first place in the promised land, and it's the city of Jericho. It's an impregnable city. It's a massive city. It's a city that is protected not only by these massive walls that some historians say where the walls were thick enough that two chariots could go side by side around the tops of the walls at all times, patrolling and protecting and defending that city. It was a city defended by massive walls. It was a city defended by a well-trained and and fearless army, and so this is what they came up against. You know, when the spies went in early on, and, and what resulted in a lack of faith on the people, when they, when they tried to, instead of following their leader, they tried to follow really the first committee in the scripture, and, and they sent in those spies, 12 spies, and, and they came back with their report, and they had taken a vote, and, and Ten of the spies said, listen, we can't go in there. Those people are huge. 
Those people are like giants, and we're like grasshoppers next to them. Why? If we go into that land, they will crush us, and they will destroy us. And yet two of the spies said, no, we're going because God is leading us, and God has promised that to us. So we're not going in in our own strength. We're going in in the strength of the Lord. But the committee took their vote, 10 to 2, and so they decided to wander a while longer in the wilderness, or at least God decided for them to. But when they finally crossed over, they found when they got to Jericho that really the ten spies, at least half of their understanding was correct. They were big. They were mighty. They were massive. They were well protected in so many ways. And against the, the Israelites, which basically didn't have a lot of a trained army, had some, but, but not a massive army, had a lot of people, but not a great army, that, that next to that they were like grasshoppers. They weren't necessarily wrong in that. But what those ten fail to realize, that when God goes before them, and when God has promised them something, and when you trust God in the midst of that promise, then you don't have to worry about their size. You don't have to worry about their walls. You don't have to worry about their preparation. When God goes before us and has promised to see us through it, our only need is not to strategize how we can do it, but our need is to say, Lord, we trust you, we follow you, we obey you. So they did. And so what we see here in the children of Israel in a, in a very real sense in the Jericho situation is what you might call a fearless faith. They had feared before with the spies. Now they go in and they say, okay, God, we've seen what happens when we don't trust you. We're going to trust you. And so God says, well, here's how I want you to do that. I want you to take the Ark of the Covenant and the priest and those with the trumpets and I want them to, I want you, them to walk around the city Six days, one time around the city for six days. Then on the seventh day, I want all the people to be behind. I don't want to walk around the city, but not one time, but seven times you walk around that city. And after the seventh time, I want you to blow the trumpets, and I want the people to shout, and those massive walls are going to fall down. Now, i got to admit, those Israelites would probably be something like us, and they would probably say, Joshua... What did the Lord tell you again? Are, are you sure you heard that right? We're just going to walk around the city, blow some horns, and the walls are going to fall? And, and Josh said that's exactly what God told us to do. And so even in the midst of probably some questioning about strategy, they said God has promised it, God will do it, and they had a fearless faith. They went forward and they did it. And the walls fell. And they walked in the city and conquered the city and destroyed many of the people who had stood against them, many of the armies, except as was read in Joshua, except for one, and that was Rahab. And, and it's so much that, that the writer in verse 31 says, in the midst of all that fearless faith going into Jericho, then you have Rahab, who really in her own way had a, had a bold faith. Uh, sometime earlier when the spies came, and the spies were being searched out by the people, and they wanted to kill them and destroy them, not let them get back to even give their majority report not to go in. And Rahab hid them and let them out by another way so they couldn't be caught, and the spies escaped without any, any harm done to them. Now, you might say, well, how does, how does the writer here know that it was by faith? That, that Rahab did this. Well, it, it was because evidently while the spies were there, while Joshua was there and, and his others, they, they, told them about the, uh, they, they told them about their God. They told them about 
who he was and what he was like. They probably told her about the deliverance that God had given them from Egypt through the Red Sea and, and out into the wilderness. They, they probably said, our God provided for us with manna and our God provided for us in so many ways. Even when we grumbled and complained. And finally they said, evidently Rahab said, that is a mighty God. And, and I, I don't understand all this. Matter of fact, she was, uh, she was a Gentile. She was a Canaanite. I mean, she was, she was everything that the Israelites weren't. She was not only that, she was not the most moral person in the world. She was a harlot, a prostitute. And yet she had faith. And when, when those who were disobedient all around her in the city, she welcomed the spies in peace. She protected the spies and, and helped them get away from there in the midst of a, of a people that wanted to destroy them. It was a bold venture. It was a it was a very daring thing that she did. But why in the world would Rahab be stuck here in this, in this story of faith when she is such an obviously, unsa obviously unsavory character? I mean, right here in, in the Hall of Fame of Faith, here is a prostitute. Here is a Gentile. Here is a Canaanite. Why would she be right here in the midst of this? I think there's a, a, a great lesson to be learned through Rahab. One is, it's to remind us that no one is ever so good that they don't need the grace of God. And no one is ever so bad that they cannot receive it. You know, it, it reminds us that here's a person... Do you know what? I, I think a lot of us are, are going to be shocked at some of the people we see in heaven. We're going to say, what? Well I, went, well, I think there are a lot of people that knew me when I was in high school and college that are going to be shocked to see me in heaven, to be honest with you, if they're there. And, and maybe you've got that same thing. But there are going to be other people that we're going to know what their life was and we're going to say, what? What are they doing here? And we're probably going to look around, if we can look, we're probably going to be so focused on Christ. This is a, it's a nonsensical illustration, but bear with me a moment. There's probably going to be a lot of looking around saying, well, I wonder where... So-and-so is. They were very philanthropic. They were very generous. They were very good deed-oriented. And yet they're not here. And the reason is we're not there because of the good deeds we do. We're not there because of the philanthropy we do. We're there because of our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And it may be that Rahab was a harlot. It may be that Rahab lived an unsavory life for a long time. But when she heard the truth, when she heard about God and his, his wonder, when she heard about God and His promises, when she heard about God who was able to do things that she had never seen before in her life, she put her faith and put her trust in that God. And that faith, justified her. It's exactly what the writer said back in verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him for he or she who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So here's Rahab. After a bold faith of the Israelites to attack the city of Jericho, she was spared or a fearless faith by the Israelites. There was a bold faith by Rahab who protected those spies, who believed their message about their Savior and obviously put her faith in Him. 
you know, so much so that Rahab became the father, uh, excuse me, the mother of who? You remember? Boaz. Who married who? Ruth. Who is in the, who became an ancestor of David. Who is in the lineage and the genealogy of Jesus. Wow. What kind of Savior is that? That is, in, in his genealogy, in his heritage, is a prostitute, a harlot. <laughs> it's a Savior of grace. It's a gracious Savior. It's a Savior who looks beyond what we are and makes us what he wants us to be. And that's what faith is all about. So you have Rahab in this hall of fame of faith. You have Rahab in the genealogy of Jesus. But he goes on. Then he's starting to get preachery here. He says in verse 32, and, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets. I, I mean, he, he starts naming these off. He names some other circumstances we'll talk about the next time we're in this book. But, but here he says, here, here, here are just some, I don't have time to talk about their exploits. I don't have time to really talk about their faith. But, but here's some names you ought to think about. Think about Gideon. Gideon was a, a judge and a military leader in Israel. And Gideon was one who assembled 32,000 soldiers to fight the Midianites and the Amalekites. He gathered this great army, well-trained, 32,000 people, and he said, I'm ready to go up against them. I'm ready, to, I'm ready to overcome them. And God said, not so fast. Not so fast, Gideon. Let's cut it down a little bit. And he cut it down to 10,000. And Gideon said, well, this isn't exactly what I was thinking about, Lord, but 33% is maybe better than nothing, so let's go get them now. And God said, not so fast. Let's cut it down again, and solely on the basis of how these men drank water from, from a spring, they were reduced down to 300 against a great army of the Midianites and the Amalekites. And in Judges 7, you find that story, and, and it says that the, those who were against Israel were as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And that's probably a little bit of hyperbole. But it's a statement of saying there was a bunch of them, and now there's 300 of us. But by faith, Gideon went forward as God told him to do. One writer said that only a fool would have attempted such a courageous approach to battle apart from God's direction and power. But from the perspective of faith, only a fool would not attempt such a thing when he has God's direction and power. You know, it ought to remind us that it's not how, how our numbers are, it's not how our training is, it's not how smart we are, it's how much do we really trust Him to face whatever battle we have to face. Yeah, Barak, who is, is not well known in Scripture. Matter of fact, we know very little about him other than what's mentioned in a brief account in Judges 4 and 5, and then he's mentioned here in Hebrews. But we know that he served with Deborah, the judge, and he was involved in, in battle, and he, he, he routed Sisera because, and all his chariots and all of his army because of Barak, because Barak trusted God, followed his call without his... Without 
God's help, Israel would have easily been slaughtered because they were way outnumbered. But Barak trusted God and did it God's way. Or you got Samson. Man, and Samson's listed here as a man of faith. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of Samson, I don't really think about faith a whole lot with Samson. I think about long hair and strength and might until he is shanghaied by a woman, cuts his hair, loses his strength, and, and all of a sudden it's, it's not such a pretty story. In many ways he was immature and self-centered. And, and, and you know, there's a lot of things going on in Samson's life that we don't think about. But he was a judge of Israel and he was given a special task of opposing the Philistines who then ruled over Israel. Samson trusted God in ways that we don't have time to get into. There's that preacher he coming to. But he trusted God and he saw victory even in the midst of his weakness. You can go on and talk about Zephah and, and who preceded Samson as a judge in Israel and his responsibility was to subdue the Ammonites and one of Israel's many enemies in the land and he made some foolish choices and foolish vows, but he, he trusted in the Lord and his power came from the Lord. Judges 11, 29 and 32 tells us. And even when people of faith make mistakes, if they honor God and trust God, God will honor them for their trust, for their faith. David. How in the world does David get listed in this great hall of fame of faith? We know that he was a great king. I mean, from his early days, he, he obviously was one of the great men of God in the Scripture in some ways. He, 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 he trusted God as a child while tending sheep and killing lions and bears. And, and he came to Goliath who, had, who, who was taunting the children of Israel and, and his brothers and, and King Saul and everybody else was cowering in fear because this giant was out in front of the, of the Philistines. And, and David comes along and says, what's the big deal? God has said we can take them. God has said they're ours. Let's go get them. And they well, can't do that. And David said, well, I'll do it. Because God has said I can do it. God has said we can accomplish it. Let's go and do it. And they put him in Saul's armor, which didn't fit, which was very gangly. And he said, I don't need all this. Took the five stones, put them in his pocket, went out of the slingshot. You know the story. Flip, flop, into it right between the eyes. And Goliath the giant falls. Now, David was a man who, in some ways, we might say was a man who had a, had a lust problem, who had a sensuality problem, who struggled in some very key areas in his life. But the Scripture says he was always a man who trusted God in the difficult situations. Even after confronted by Nathan the prophet with his sin with Bathsheba, when he finally had Nathan tell him that little parable and, and he became angry at this person who would do such a thing. And, and Nathan said, but David, you are the man. The scripture says he tore his clothes and in sackcloth and ashes he repented. And penned one of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible, Psalm 51. He said, Lord, do not let your spirit depart from me. And Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I mean, he said, I, I know my sin has brought me out of joy. I know my sin has, has disrupted my walk with you. Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Not, his, not, not David's salvation, but God's salvation. He didn't say, give me back salvation. Lord, help me because I lost it. He said, just restore to me the joy 
of my salvation, of thy salvation, your salvation. David was not perfect, but yet God called him a man after my heart who will do all my will. I don't know about you, but it kind of kind of encourages me just a little bit that these, these men of faith, these women of faith were not perfect. We're not, did not struggle in areas of personal holiness from time to time. Because it helps me to know that if God was faithful to them, God is faithful also to me. Then he goes on to Samuel, and he says, Samuel, I don't have time to talk about Samuel, but, but you know Samuel, and then all the prophets. Samuel is added to the, this list of warriors, though he himself was really not a warrior. Uh, but he fought a battle unlike battles that those soldiers fought. Samuel's struggle was within Israel. It wasn't with the Philistines. It wasn't with the Amalekites. It wasn't with any of the, the external enemies. He struggled with those within his people. The great foes he fought against were idolatry and immorality among the people. He confronted his own people in spiritual battle. You know, I'll be honest with you, sometimes it's easier to fight the world than it is to fight the sin within and among our friends. Do you agree with that? I mean, a lot of times it's easier to say, oh, we're going to fight abortion. And I'm all for fighting abortion. But, but you know, we're going to fight abortion. We're going to fight, uh, uh, fight same-sex marriage. And we're going to fight all these things out there when there's idolatry and sin and immorality within the body. Samson said, not worried about the external enemies. I'm worried about what's destroying us internally. Immorality. Idolatry. We're putting our trust in things other than God. We're, we're replacing God as preeminent in our lives with something else. Probably we need a, Samson, uh, excuse me, a Samuel today who will rise up within our body. Then he goes on and doesn't even name the prophets. He just says, and there's all those prophets. They were, they were faithful. They were, they were faithful to God. They proclaimed His word. They told His truth. And most of them at great price. Later, Jesus says, you know, you're the ones who killed the prophets. You're the ones who slayed the messengers. God spoke. God commanded. God directed. And you didn't listen. But you killed the messengers. So he goes on to talk about things like that. And next week we'll see him talk about uh, women getting their loved ones back, their dead back, people being quenched by the fi power of fire, uh, fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and so on and so forth that he, that he deals with just in making allusion to it. But very important things where people trusted God. But I think what I want you to see above everything else here is that there's hope and there's encouragement for you and me because these people struggled with things that you and I struggle with. And God gave them power to overcome it. God gave them strength to overcome it. I like what John Calvin said in this passage in his commentary. He's talking about it. He said, there was none of them, talking about these that are just mentioned in this passage today, there was none of them whose faith did not falter. In every saint, there is always to be found something reprehensible. Nevertheless, 
Although faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it does not cease to be approved by God. There is no reason, therefore, why the fault from which we labor should break us or discourage us, provided we go on by faith in the race of our calling. If those who need His help will but seek God's face, they will not cry in vain. His, he delights. I love this statement. Listen to this. This is important for you and me. He, that is God, delights in choosing those who seem most unsuitable and using those who seem most rebellious. You know, the New Testament says, James goes into the whole thing about he's chosen the weak of this world to show the strength of God. He didn't go to the scholars and the princes and, the, and all of those who people would say, oh man, they're really smart, so they, that's why they understand God. He went to the, the, the simple and he went to the weak and he said, this is where I'll show my strength. This is where I'll show my power. And, and, and Calvin says here, he delights in choosing those who seem most unsuitable and using those who seem most rebellious. That is, we, we have weaknesses. We can't just excuse them as though they don't matter. But we can understand that God will use those and strengthen us, even in the midst of it. Just as he did David, just as he did uh, uh, Samuel, just as he did Barak, just as he did Samson, and, and all these others, God does not look to what you can do but he looks to what he can and will do in you and through you. And the key to the Christian life is not trying to say, okay, I'm going to be good enough for God. But the key to the Christian life is trusting him. By faith, Grace Baptist did what? Just name it. Whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever it is, it must be done by faith. If we build a building on Oak Leaf Lane because we can do it, and we can strategize enough to do it, then it will be miserable. It will fail. But if we do it by faith, keeping our hearts in, in tune to Him, keeping our faces seeking His face, keeping our prayer life, in the right direction. By faith, there is literally nothing that can stand in our way to keep us from glorifying Him. By faith. Not by works. Not by goodness. Not by intelligence. But by faith. Let's pray. Father, we sometimes so so easily misunderstand what faith is. 
And so many times, Lord, we make it as something that we just do initially, and that's it. We receive your grace, we have faith, and that's it. But Lord, just like these Old Testament saints, we must trust you every step of the way. Our faith must grow. Our faith must be diligent to seek you. And your grace is always sufficient, not just for salvation, but for sanctification, for life. Father, I pray this day that we would see these imperfect saints and be encouraged to walk more as you've called us to walk, to, to seek you as you've called us to seek you and to by obedience enter into your promises. Father, I pray this morning for men and women here, young people here that don't know you. I pray that your Holy Spirit will touch their life, open their eyes, draw them to you in faith. I pray, Lord, for those here who are struggling in their faith, that they will understand that we all do that. But the key is not to surrender to the struggle, but to focus on you. And seek your face and seek your presence. Father, we're going to sing a song, Open My Eyes That I May See. Lord, that is our prayer. Help us, O oh Father, to do that. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.